Continue our study of the book of 2 Corinthians. You can turn to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 16 is where we'll pick up. If you need a Bible, put your hand in the air and the ushers will bring a Bible to you so you can follow with us. Now, we began this uh, chapter a couple weeks ago, and and so there's a, a few things we must keep in mind in order to move along in the text and keep the context. Paul was being challenged by some about his authority as an apostle or his credentials to be an apostle to the believers there in the the city of Corinth. And, And so he begins the chapter with what he calls a little bit of folly, uh, seemingly bragging that, that he could kind of match up to what these false teachers had, had brought to them. There were many false teachers uh, self-appointing themselves as apostles or even what, what he'll refer to as super apostles. And, and, and so they were, they were bringing in their stories of their own righteousness and their own abilities. And, and these uh, false teachers were coming on the scene and they were trying to discredit uh, Paul's ministry uh, by tearing down the simplicity of the message that Paul had left with the Corinthian church. And so he's defending his apostleship as, as well as pointing out to the Corinthian believers that these false teachers were trying to dissuade them and, and to really move them off course from where the Lord would want them to be and to dissuade them from preaching that true message of salvation. Now, if you remember, we ended last time, verses 13 and 14, it says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. And, and so uh, Paul is, is reminding them that these false teachers... Are, are much like Satan himself. Satan is the master of deception, or he even masquerades as an angel of light with that appearance of good, and yet there's evil behind what he's doing. And, and, and so what it means is that, that the enemy will use anything, any deceptive tool possible, any, uh, anything possible to distract you and to distract me, from our relationship with the Lord and growing in that relationship with God. He, he will use well-sounding arguments to try and, and derail us from our faith. Uh, the, the arguments may even appear to uh, be something of spiritual value or spiritual content. 
and yet there's no value to it whatsoever. It's a masquerade. It's, it's deception at its roots. And, and so it's true deception from the father of lies himself, Satan. And so we're to be alert. We're to be aware of that. In fact, Peter warns us in 1 Peter 5.8, he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And, and, and that doesn't mean we're supposed to walk around in fear because we have this enemy. No, we're supposed to be alert and aware of his tactics, but we don't need to fear him. We have the power of the living God working in our lives. Well, in our text this morning, Paul once again addresses this uh, issue with what he calls foolishness. And uh, he addresses the deception that was coming to these believers. And he, he does it again with what he would call foolishness or folly. But, but also, now he is going to include in what he's, he's using as his defense the reality of what it cost him to be an apostle and, and the true credentials that he has and the trials that he faced. So let's pick it up in verse 16. It says, I say again, let no one think me a fool, if otherwise at least receive me as a fool, that I also may boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as, were, as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting, seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. So again, he's, he's kind of warning them that what he is uh, engaging in here is foolishness, but he's doing it to drive a point home to the Corinthian believers. Uh, you know, we're warned against uh, boasting in our own great deeds many times throughout the scripture. And, and, and so we know that Really, in us, there's nothing good apart from what God has done in us. And there's no righteousness in, in you or righteousness in me that can, can uh, really stand before a righteous God. It's the righteousness of Christ Jesus in which we can stand. And so we have nothing to truly boast about. Uh, we, we have to remember it's grace and grace alone. That, that any of us are able to stand before a righteous God. And so Paul knew this. He taught this often in his letters, and, and yet he's quick to tell them that what he's about to write is foolishness in that context, but it's to prove a point about these men who have come on the scene. He knew that any accomplishment that came uh, from his desire to walk with the Lord and to be an effective witness was not about Paul, was about the Lord. He knew this. He wrote of it. We understand that. However, to prove this point uh, to the Corinthian believers who were actually being duped by these men that had come on the scene, these super apostles who were boasting in and of their own abilities, their own righteousness, he He's going to show this comparison. In verse 19, we continue. He says, For you put up with uh, fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise, a little divine sarcasm. Uh, for you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. To our shame, I say we are too weak for that, but... 
in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, again, a warning, I am also, or I am bold also. His concern was for these young believers uh, that they would listen to anyone who would come along that was boasting in their own abilities and spiritual matters and their own leadership ability and such. And, and uh, <clears throat> they were being taken advantage of by these, these men who had come on the scene. Uh, they, they had the charisma that would captivate these young believers. And, and in that charisma, they could say anything and even bring abuse about in their leadership over these, these Christians. And so the, the Corinthian Christians were so taken with these super apostles that they would accept even the ill treatment that they were bringing about in their lives. They were so impressed with the image of this authority that they were supposedly bringing into the, into the church there that they meekly submitted even to harsh treatments. Sadly, today, many people are more comfortable with an authoritarian type leadership than they are in the freedom in Christ that we find in scripture. And people are actually drawn to these strong personalities, these charismatic personalities who are even abusive in the way they would lead saying that they are a spiritual leader. I mean, we, we can just look in recent history with Jim Jones and the, the way he captivated this group of people in, and in, in a spiritual type of leadership in their lives, you know, got them to even leave the country and, and go down to uh, South America and, and commit suicide for him. I mean, he, he had that dominating authority over their lives and they submitted to it. David Koresh, uh, was another one. This this guy would would tell men that he had to. They would have to give him their wives in order to prove their uh, submission to him, and they would give them or give to him their wives. And it, it's just crazy what people will do in submission to that authoritarian type of leadership. And again, Paul says it's foolish in his mind to boast. But as an example of what God has done through a man who didn't want credit for the great work, he starts to lay out some of the things that would compare to what these men were boasting about. You know, when we read what he wrote here, we need to keep in mind that that Paul was truly a man wanting to glorify God, not Paul. He, He didn't want to exalt himself. This is merely an example. And in the following verses, he didn't write it to brag. He wrote it to make a point to these Corinthians. In in verse 22, he continues. And he says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. Again, he puts that little caveat in there. And and. In labors, more abundant, stripes above measure, and prisons more frequently, and deaths often. And so Paul begins to lay out his pedigree to, to these Corinthians. And, and, and really, I mean, in a, in a human sense, Paul had an imp- a pretty impressive pedigree. 
I mean, he was a Hebrew from the, the seed of Abraham. And, and so his human ancestry was sufficient in, in order to be called to the ministry that God had, had called him to. If you remember, Paul was a Pharisee before he was saved. He was, he was a Pharisee who was trained under Gamaliel, who was one of the leading teachers of that day. And, and so, so Paul, in a human sense, had, had many qualifications. But it's interesting, he says here, that he was a true minister of Jesus. The the most eminent apostles, or super apostles, as they, they self-proclaim, they claimed to be ministers of Christ. Even though he felt like it was foolish for saying it, he says, I am more than what they are claiming to be. You see, when, when the, the false teachers used the term minister, it probably sounded like it was a position of honor and, and it was a privileged title of some kind. But as for Paul, he will claim also to be among the ministers of Christ, but uh, will explain that it means something totally different than these false super apostles meant. You see, the word minister in the original language that, that Paul wrote this is the word uh, diakonos, and it it's the same word we get deacon from or uh, servant. It means to run errands or to be an attendant or a waiter of some kind. And, and, and so it isn't really a title of prominence or, or something that, that you would think as, as those, uh, those false teachers were trying to make it. It wasn't this authoritarian kind of issue. The, the word minister is actually a description of a slave or a servant, somebody that would come underneath others and minister to their needs. And, and so Paul was saying, I, I am more so because he demonstrated that with his life. I mean, Paul laid down his own life often in order to pr- uh, promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. He, he came as a servant. He came as less than in order to, for Christ to be glorified. He was an ambassador of Christ. And in his, his life here, he says he labored, labored more abundantly. Paul lived his life to bring glory to Jesus and, and with the intent of leading others to Christ and, and to win over the hearts and men throughout the areas in which he traveled as an ambassador of Christ. He, he didn't live life for the praises of men but to hear those words from his Savior, well done, good and faithful servant, enter in to the joy of the Lord. That, that was Paul's intent for the service that he performed in the name of the Lord. And, and so he, he, when he came to the Corinthians, remember he said, when I came to you, I came to preach Christ and him crucified. I didn't come with eloquent words of speech. I came not so that man could be glorified, but so that you would see the spirit working and you would see God glorified. That was how he came to them. He labored day and night to this end. He desired men and women to be saved. Oh, that we would have that same passion, that we would be driven in our life to see others come to faith in Christ, that that we would wake up with the idea that the Lord wants to use us 
in some way to communicate his goodness to the world around us. To walk with him, to be a witness for him, to see other people's lives change because we have made a stand for righteousness in our own life. The Apostle Paul was a great role model for this, uh, for, for this choice of taking a stand for what is right. No matter what opposition came against him, he stood for righteousness. No matter what opposition comes against us, we need to stand. In fact, once the decision is made to surrender your life to the Lord and into his service, you can expect opposition. I'm just going to tell you that flat out. You can expect that there is going to be conflict and opposition in your life. Uh, You know, since I've been the pastor of this church, I've talked much about the responsibility that all of us have as Christians, that Christianity isn't a spectator sport. We're all involved in the work of the ministry and, and that all of us have a calling, all of us have a place and, and, and we're to seek the Lord for what that place is and then to serve him in that capacity. And, and when we're doing that, that all together collectively as a body of believers, we are going to have a greater impact on the world around us. That's a truth. And, you know, in these past few months, we, we've had a lot of movement around in our, in our church family and in, in the, the leadership of our church, and different leaders are, are moving into different positions, and the Lord's just kind of shifting things around. And, and so I've had this conversation quite a bit in the last few months with people. As they're willing to say, yes, I'll, I'll step up, I tell them, okay, now this is the deal, now that you said that. You just put a target on your back. (laughs) The reality is, is you just entered into a deeper sense of warfare in your life because you said, yes, I'll serve the Lord. Opposition is part of the equation of having an impact on other people. You can expect that the enemy is going to stoke up the fire in your life and come against you in some way And he will use people, he will use situations, he will use anything else that he can possibly use to discourage you from what you just decided to do. To discourage you from following the Lord and serving him with your life. Let's face it. If the enemy is successful and he can get you all wound up about the trials and they consume your life, then it's going to put you on the bench as far as being useful for moving the kingdom forward. And, and folks, if, if the, the trials or the pressure that, that are going to come from every direction are successful, he will get our eyes off of the Lord and put them on the problem. This is an age-old tactic. This is not new, folks. Satan is the master at doing this. Remember, he's been around a lot longer than you and I have. He's been studying humanity for quite a while now. And and so he knows how to come against humanity and to consume us and to fixate us on something other than what the Lord has called us to do. And, and so if he can get our attention off of serving and onto life's pressures, he will succeed at keeping us ineffective and impacting the world around us. 
Now, having said that, I'm not trying to minimize the trial that you may be facing right now. Now, I realize any time I talk to a group of people this size that there are several people probably in the midst of the fire right now, that there are incredible, difficult trials you're facing. I'm not trying to minimize any of that. I'm just saying, be aware of who's behind it and and why he's engaging in this. And so Paul models something for us in his life in dealing with those trials and those pressures in, in, in a way that, that would show us how we could keep our eyes on the Lord. We want to keep our lives effective in service to the Lord. And so let's look at some of the things Paul contended with because he chose to be faithful to the Lord. I mean, he's already said that he was in prisons more often. And, um, you know, the book of Acts is not a, a complete record of everything Paul did. But there's enough in the record of what he did to show that he was put in prison several times. And, and it wasn't like a prison today. I mean, it wasn't cable TV and golf courses. It, it was like in a hole and in a damp dungeon type of experience. I mean, so it wasn't a pleasure uh, at all to be imprisoned at that time. Um, he also says stripes above measure. And check out, he's going to explain that to us in verse 24. He says, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. In a night and a day I have been in the deep and in journeys often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, fastings often in cold and nakedness. And so he, he gives this list and he says, you know, five times I was flogged. He received 40 stripes minus one. Now this, this was done to him by the Jews and when they did the flogging, they would... They would According to the law, they couldn't strike a person more than 40 times. So, so in order to not bypass the law, they would stop at 39. They didn't want to, you know, miscount and, and accidentally go beyond the law. And so they would stop at 39. And so what they would do is they would tie this person's hands to a post. And they would take this whip, most likely some type of leather material, they would have three strands that came off of it, and they would put pottery and bone chips and different things to grip the skin. And, and they would take the first 13, and they would strike across the chest. They would take the second 13 and come down the left shoulder down the back, and the next 13 and come from the right shoulder down the back in order to get the most effective uh, meat tearing they could get out of this event Paul says five times the Jews had flogged him. Three times he was beaten with rods, probably by the Romans. This was a typical punishment of the Romans. It's similar to the caning that we would see today where they would, they would take a rod and they would just strike the person 
as, as much as they needed to according to what the crime was or what they thought the crime was. And so the Romans hit him with rods. He got stoned outside the city. Now, that, that doesn't mean he went to Colorado and smoked a joint. <laughs> that means they took him outside the city and they picked up rocks and they stoned him and they left him for dead outside the city. And, and so um, three times he was shipwrecked. He was left at sea for a day and a night and uh, he, he faced danger from his own countrymen from the Gentiles, uh, in the city, in the desert. He faced difficulty. He faced danger from those who claimed to be Christians and those who were not. He lived in weariness and pain. He had many sleepless nights. Often he had gone without food. All of this because he was a believer that said, yes, Lord, I will serve you. Now, doesn't that sound appealing? <laughs> Does anybody want to sign up for ministry and say, yeah, take me? I mean, some of you may not even be a Christian. You're sitting here thinking, now, I know Christians are telling me to come to Jesus, and he's the answer, but it sounds like things might be a little better without him. Don't be fooled. Life without Jesus has problems as well. It's the end result of the problems that you need to consider. You see, without Jesus, you have difficulty in this life and you have to face it without hope. With Jesus, you have difficulty in this life and you get to face it with hope. And that's what Paul did. He faced it with hope inside of him. And, and this is what energized him to keep him going. He, he had an eternal perspective. He saw beyond what they were doing to him physically, and he saw the reward that was waiting for him because he was a servant of the Lord. And that eternal perspective carried him through. And it really didn't matter what the people or the enemy did to him in the process. His eyes were on the reward of eternity with his Savior. And this is the key to surviving those life-crushing situations. It's to look beyond the situation and keep that eternal perspective of what God has promised. You see, this, this is what James says in James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Count it all joy. How in the world is that supposed to happen? How do you find yourself in the midst of something horrible and count it all joy? You see, it's important to know what, what James is not saying here. You see, Paul wasn't saying, praise the Lord, I just received 39 lashes. It wasn't like this fake sense of Christianity. He wasn't saying, praise the Lord, hit me again. That isn't what James is talking about when he says joy in the midst of the trial. You see, I doubt there was much 
thankfulness when they were beating him with rods or when they were whipping him and his back was being shredded. However, while that was happening, he could still rejoice in the fact that the Lord was with him in that trial. The Lord was sustaining him underneath the the ugliness of what was taking place. And so he could endure the flogging and the joy of the Lord could remain intact because it didn't affect his relationship with the living God. He, he could be joyful that the peace of God that surpasses understanding was there when they were pummeling him with stones. He, he could be joyful that, that he knew that any type of insult or attack upon his person or his character could not remove the eternal reward that God had promised to him. You see, he lived his life with that eternity in his sights. And he lived his life as if Jesus were coming back at any moment. You, you realize Paul in the first century lived with that expectation. You know what? Jesus can come back at any moment. And I, I believe that's what drove him to have such an impact. I mean, think about the impact he had. He, it, it, it was said of him that he was turning the world upside down for the kingdom of God because he had that perspective. See, the good news is we can have that same perspective today. As we are bombarded with trials and attacks from people or the enemy, we can have the joy of the Lord in the pressure. While we're facing it, we can have the joy of the Lord. And again, I'm not talking about some plastic Christianese thing where you, you know, I've talked to people for years and, and, you know, some people think they have to, you know, walk around with that plastic smile on saying, praise the Lord, I broke my arm. It's like, no, don't praise the Lord. You, bro-. you can praise the Lord while your arm is broken and you can be joyful that he's with you, but don't fake it. Don't, don't try to make it something it's not. People see through this, this false sense of what we're saying. And so it's joy that comes because we have sought him in the midst of our pain. Joy that comes from the inside, not the outside, not the external circumstances, but it's a joy that comes from the inside of me because I have spent time with the Lord. It, you see, if the, the trial drives me to the Lord and it, and it brings me to him, I'll spend more time with him. I will, I will read more. I will pray more. I will worship more. And, and as a result of that, that security, that hope, that joy from knowing him comes alive from the inside out. Nehemiah 8.10 says, The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength to bear the burdens that I must face. It's the same strength for you to bear the burdens that you must face in this life. And, and James even, he, he goes on and he tells us that the, the trials handled properly cause us to mature as believers. That, that you know, if, if we truly are seeking the Lord and we're experiencing that joy of the Lord, the, the character in us is being built as we stand in, in the, the pressure cooker. There's a, there's a spiritual character being built in us. 
And somehow as a result of these pressures being in our life and us turning to God in order to remain in joy, that this character is strengthened. And this is what the Lord desires from us is character, strong character. Now, now you may be thinking, well, you know, this list that we're reading is, is really kind of unrealistic in, in today's society. I mean, Paul was facing some things that, that aren't really applicable today. Well, maybe here in America it's not. We don't get beaten or stoned for our faith, left for dead, but there are still Christians facing these adversities in every century. Christians have lived under this kind of pressure and persecution. And, and so if, you know, if, if you subscribe to the Voice of the Martyrs, uh, that's a great organization for keeping that perspective alive in us that there are people actually suffering for their faith. And, and so you can even turn on the news today and see that. I mean, we, we get reports of that with ISIS now beheading Christians in the Middle East and, and bringing unrealistic torture upon these people. And, 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 and so there are still Christians faith, facing death on a daily basis just for calling themselves a follower of Jesus. ISIS is out of control right now. You know, I was reading a book this week um, called Jesus Freaks. It was written by DC Talk and Voice of the Martyrs. They partnered in this in this book. And, you know, I just read these these stories from time to time just to keep my my spirit in the right perspective about what can happen. I mean, we're we're pretty exempt right now, but but folks think about this. In the 30s, the Jews that were in Nazi Germany didn't think what happened to them could happen to them. And they were stripped of everything, even their humanity, as the brutal dictator brought things about. So we can never say we're completely exempt. It, it can change. That's not a scare tactic. It's just reality. It could change at any moment for any society. But, but I read these stories just to kind of keep it fresh in my mind, what people really contend with. I was reading this one story about a, a Roman pastor named Florescu, and he was uh, imprisoned during the, the uh, Romanian um, communist period, and they were trying to extract information from him. They knew he was a pastor, and they they wanted to find out who the other Christians were so they could go after them. And so they began to systematically torture him on a daily basis. And they, were, they would take knives and they would heat them up and they would start cutting into his body and just, you know, trying to get him to talk as they made cuts. They would take iron pokers and they would heat them up to red hot and they would stick him with these pokers and they, they would just try to do something to get him to break. And and he, he held his own, and they, they would put him into this room at night, and they would drop rats down a pipe. And these rats would go into his room, and he had to stay awake to fight the rats off. If he fell asleep, they would start eating him. And so he was up for you know days and weeks at a time fighting these rats off. And, and at one point, they forced him to stand for two weeks straight, 
And, and so they're doing these inhumane things, trying to get him to break, and, and he was able to stand strong in the Lord. And eventually the captors brought his 14-year-old son Alexander in, and they began to torture him in front of Florescu. And as he was watching this, he, he finally told his son, I can't, I can't watch this any longer. I have to give him the information they need. And just when he was about to give in, his son yelled out to him, Father, don't do me the injustice of having a traitor as a parent. Withstand. If they kill me, I will die with the words of Jesus and my fatherland on my lips. And shortly after that, they killed him in front of him. And he died a martyr's death with the Lord's name on his lips. Now, that's a terrible story. But it happened just 50 years ago in human history. How is it that a person can withstand such great horror and keep from caving in under such enormous pressure? How is it that Christians in the Middle East right now are able to face the evils of Islam's hatred and the brutality of what they are doing to families, beheading men, raping women, selling children? How how is it that a person can stand in the face of such evil? It's the eternal perspective. It's seeing beyond what's happening and seeing the God that has made promises to them. Knowing that nothing this world or anyone in this world can do can rob you of the eternal life that God has promised. Now, I received an email on Friday from Joel Rosenberg detailing some blessings that are coming out of this horror. I didn't want to just leave it on that horror. And in this email, he he had a quote from a friend of his, and I'm just going to read it to you. It's going to take me a couple minutes to read it, so just bear with me. Uh, It's from a guy named Tom Doyle. He said, When you think of Christianity in the Middle East, the first word that probably comes to mind is persecution. But another word should come to mind, harvest. The year 2015 was certainly a year of persecution for followers of Jesus Christ in the Muslim world. But one of the reasons for this is the large number of Muslims who have left the religion of Islam and now embrace Jesus as their savior. That said, persecution is not stopping the spread of the gospel. To the contrary, the killing of Christians is accelerating the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. In fact, over the centuries, oppressors have never recognized that persecution of Christians is always a failed initiative. It doesn't destroy the church. It makes the church grow. Welcome to the new Middle East. Muslims all over the region are coming to faith in Christ. What's more, they're willing to suffer persecution for the Lord Jesus Christ in part because they see a great harvest of other Muslims and want to be faithful in proclaiming the good news of salvation in a world of such darkness. 
Here are some of the things my wife and team and I have been seeing as we traveled in and out of the region. I'm just going to read one of them to you. It says, in November 2015, I took a team to a country in the Middle East and witnessed something phenomenal. Former Muslims, 25 former Muslims baptized as new believers in Jesus. The city where we were has a steadily growing underground church. Indeed, they've seen 90 Muslims receive Jesus recently, and that's just in one city. One was a woman who is married to a Muslim cleric, a Muslim imam, a religious cleric. When she embraced Jesus, her irate husband found out, threw her out of the house, and kept their three children. He vowed that if she were baptized, he would kill her. But there she was, one of the 25 lining up to be baptized. And as she came out of the water, there was an overwhelming relief and joy on her face. By the world's standard, she has lost everything. But she's not willing to deny Jesus and her love for him. And, and so there's, there's fruit coming from people being willing to stand in the face of adversity, just like in Paul's day. There's blessing coming from the, the tragedy of these wicked people. And, and these stories continue to come out of the Middle East, and, and the Lord is doing a work there. And it's because their eyes are on heaven and not their circumstances. You see, that's the key to living in the tumultuous times in which we live. It's the eternal eyes, the eternal perspective. This is how the Apostle Paul did it in the first century. This is how Pastor Florescu did it 50 years ago. This is how the, the, the Christians in the Middle East are doing it today. And this is how you and I can face the trials that we face today. We keep our eyes on the reward for believing and following Jesus. We don't allow our, uh, ourselves to be consumed with the difficulties of this life. We know that if Paul experienced these difficult times, and we've seen it throughout history, that we are going to experience difficult times. But these are Paul's words to the Philippians. In Philippians 3, 13 and 14, he says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, keeping heaven in his view, not the, the, the difficulties that he had experienced, keeping heaven in my sights, keeping heaven in your sights, gives us the ability to face the things in this life in a way that we can live for him, no matter what it is that we experience. A life lived in a way that people can see the true and the living God working in us, just like it's happening there in the Middle East. Now, besides all of that, he goes on to say, verse 28, Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak? I am not weak. Who is made to stumble? And I do not burn with indignation. You know, besides all of the trials Paul has experienced, he says, I have this, this burden for you, the church. 
Those who were trying to teach and lead uh, those astray, it was a burden to Paul to see these young believers being duped by these false teachers and led astray. His deep concern was not for himself, it was for others, for the weak, not to be made to stumble. You know, I, I get what Paul's saying here. I, I can comprehend his heart in this matter. I, I've been privileged to be able to teach the Bible for the last 33 years and 27 of them as, as a pastor and involved in people's lives. And um, it grieves my heart to see somebody come to faith, experience a life-changing exchange with the Lord and begin to learn what it means to be a new creation and then to have a trial come that derails them or to have a false teacher enter in and pull them off into some heresy I mean, I, I look at these things in people's lives sometimes and it just makes me weep. I, I, I understand what Paul is saying. To see somebody miss all that God has for their lives. And so Paul said, I, I have this burden. And we'll close with this in verse 30. He says, if I must boast, I will boast in the things which confirm or concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes and with a garrison, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Now, Paul ends by putting this into perspective. If he were to boast without boasting as a fool, like he started, it would be in his weakness. Why? Because in his weakness, God is glorified. Originally, when Paul came to Damascus, you remember he was headed to Damascus when he got saved. He came to Damascus with letters of authority from the religious leaders. He came in this pompous attitude, this superior mindset that he was going to deal with these these nasty Christians that were so pesky, he was going to put them in jail and some were going to be put to death. And he came with all of that authority. And now he says, I'm leaving in a basket in humility. And so he left by sneaking out of town this humility and weakness shows the glory of God. As we apply these principles that, that we've learned today, we, we face trials with this, this new attitude that, that looks beyond the trial, that, that says, Lord, I can experience the joy of the Lord in the midst of this trial. Your joy will be my strength. I know that you're going to get me beyond this. It's truly his strength, his grace that allows me to live for him and to be a witness in the face of life's challenges. Knowing who my father in heaven is and who he is to me allows me to face things differently. You know, there's this story of a, 
of a flight that was going across country. It was leaving the West Coast, going to the East Coast. And, and about halfway across the country, this, this plane started experiencing this extreme uh, turbulence in the air. And, you know, you've been on a plane when that happens. They tell you, put your seatbelt on. Well, well, this is one of those times when it was really bouncing. And, and so most of the passengers were white-knuckled as this plane was shaken about. And, and there was this man sitting next to this young girl, and she was just sitting there playing with her doll. And finally, he just looked at her, and he says, Young lady, does it not trouble you that we're in such turbulence right now? And she says, Oh, no. My daddy's the pilot, and he said he's taking me home. And I know he's going to get me there safely. And so she wasn't concerned at all. Folks, we can have that same confidence in God. He, he's flying our plane. He's going to get us through the adversity and the turbulation and the trial. So Christian, rest in him. Let his glory shine in the adversity that you face. Now, if you're not a Christian yet, you you can change that today. I I can't promise you a pain-free life. I just explained that it won't be. But I can tell you that it's a life filled with hope. And, And the simplicity of the message is that Jesus died for you to give you this hope. He died to pay the price for your sin. And the Bible says if you'll acknowledge that, if you will put your faith in Jesus, you will believe that he died for your sin and that you'll repent. That means turn and go towards God that you'll be born again. I'm going to give you an opportunity here to, to do that, to receive Christ as your Savior. Take hold of that hope. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you that even in adversity, your glory shines. And Lord, we're, we're thankful that when we say yes and the trials come, that we can see past them and still have the eternal promises to hold on to. Lord, I pray that that perspective would flood the hearts and minds of believers in this room. Lord, that we would be willing to stand for righteousness and stand in the face of adversity and to glorify you for the world around us to see the love and the compassion that you have and your desire to save. Lord, we we want to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And if there's any among us today, Lord, that have not made that decision, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. I just want to give you that opportunity to pray and to Ask Jesus to be your personal Savior and to have your sin forgiven. If that's you, can you put your hand up in the air so I can see it? I want to lead you in a prayer to receive Christ as your Savior. Anybody at all? Lord, thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. May we serve you. With our whole lives, we pray in Jesus' name.